Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to America Meditating Radio in collaboration with The Next Normal. Yes, the meditation museums are still closed. I have no idea what to do, where to start, where to go. Things are, in a way, teaching many of us what we just have no more control over except the way we choose to feel. There are things that have become a gift as a result of this particular time, maybe the gift of more communication with family, intimacy with family, and maybe old friends have become new, maybe enemies have become friends, maybe friends have become enemies. I don't know. But a lot of things have changed in the last year and a half, and I hope that we too have changed. Change is the inevitable, no matter how much you cut it, dice it, sink it, cook it, swirl it, we're going to change. I was sharing with my friend Guzan, who's going to be joining us soon, that my relocation and move has been revealing to me a different side of me that I wasn't even aware. I'm not like settled inside myself, you know, and I'm so accustomed to being in charge with how I feel and how I show up for me, not for anyone else. And I found myself going, who's this new person? I don't even know who this person is. I don't like this person that's coming up. But spirituality, life teaches us that whoever's coming up is going to be good. And it's going to be of service to you. The topic that we're going to explore today is a really hard one. You know, maybe one of the good things about this pandemic is that sex trafficking and some of these organized businesses that used to take place have kind of lost a lot of money. Things have changed at least maybe a year ago or six months after the pandemic really hit full throttle. It had reduced tremendously. And just imagine how many lives kind of were put on hold and saved for a little bit. This is my thought. But of course, as things are opening up and people are feeling like they're going back to normal, we're really back where we were. What I'm witnessing in Israel, in Palestine, in India, in Thailand, in Kenya, you know, you say to yourself, what's going on in the world? Haven't we learned? No, we haven't. Because if you haven't been taking care of the soul, then if life situations or circumstances outside of you aren't in order in the way that you want it, then however you have been inside is going to reveal itself. So if I'm not in that place of really amplifying myself, my spiritual integrity, my ability to feel comfortable in my skin, then even though I want something to work and I want something to be in order, my spiritual vibration won't let it happen if I haven't served the deepest part of me. So what do you get? You get greed, you get rage, you get anger, you get hate, you get lust. And if we keep feeding it over and over and over again, it gets stronger than the original spiritual quality of the soul that we really are. And perhaps it has to get worse. 
until somehow the soul just surrenders and says, I give up, I give in. I just want to be a good person. The work that our guest is doing is to invite people to be better people. And she's working in an area where people are not their best at all, whether it's the victim or the oppressor. No one's in their best state. So let me give you a little introduction of who she is. Dr. Suzanne Abadian is an Iranian-born scholar who's passionate about enhancing human capabilities and well-being. She's an independent practice teaching, speaking, and consulting internationally on leadership, collective trauma, and personal social and cultural change. Dr. Abadian earned a PhD in political economy and government from Harvard University, an MPA in international development from Harvard's Kennedy School, and an MA in Anthropology of Social Change and Development, also from Harvard University. She's the author of two forthcoming books, Free Me to Love, When is Consent Not Consent? Dr. Abadian previously served as a Franklin Fellow at the USA Department's Office of International Religious Freedom. I love that facility, by the way. Portfolio included preventing violent extremism, gender-based violence, rights of religious minorities in the Middle East and South Asia, and restoration of people and cultures following atrocities. Please welcome Dr. Suzanne Abadian to America Meditating and Next Normal. So glad that you could join us today. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. What a wonderful introduction, Sister Jenna, and I'm so grateful to be here. It's actually such a privilege, and I so want to honor you for the work you're doing, even with all the dislocation that you've been undergoing. I mean, oh, bless you, God, what a challenge, and so grateful to have this opportunity to share my work with you and other people. So thank you for inviting me to be here today. I really appreciate you're, it. You're welcome. You must tell me why George Washington is behind you. Oh, it's actually not George Washington. It's oh, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin, who I love. He's my favorite founding father. I just love that he was a polymath, and he was interested in both spiritual things and science, and he was first self-help person. You know, he wrote these short self-help things for people, and he just felt to me like this unlimited man. You know, even till he was older, he was doing things. So that's sort of how I see myself. I want to never retire, constantly moving, growing, learning, sharing. This painting, actually, the original, is in the White House, and I was very privileged to have been in the White House at one point during President Obama's administration and got to see this painting, and I loved it. So. I got one made, you know, a copy made for myself here. I didn't even know that Ben Franklin had some spiritual tenets about him. I'm happy to hear that. I'm going to do some more research on him for sure. He was more of a universalist. And apparently at his funeral, people from many different faiths came. All the various faiths came, Muslims and Jews and Christians. So he was open and also Native. He was very open to Native spirituality in some ways. So that's what I understand about him. But Mm -hmm. I might have made that last piece up, but I hope that was the case. Suzanne, you know, the world's going through a lot of changes and we are changing. I won't say the world is changing and I'm not changing. I'm changing, so the world is reflecting my changes, right? And so perhaps we're changing from an area of maybe feeling really so uncomfortable with ourselves now that it can't be hidden. So there are bombing strikes, there's hate, there's division, there's prejudice, there's so much of that because we've been maybe feeding those emotions for way too long. And now it's just saying, okay, let me show you full-fledged what you've been up to. As a toddler, you had a near-death experience, and I don't know how much a toddler can remember what that was like, but I'm sure the recording is in the soul. 
But I would love to start our time together to talk about how you felt impacted your life from that particular beginning. You know, you're the first person to ask me that question. So I really appreciate that. Well, up until now, I've been on podcasts and things that weren't necessarily spiritual. So this is my coming out into the world in a different way. This is the first for me in a way. So I didn't really remember a lot about that experience until I was told about that experience a little bit by my mother. But it was when I started meditating and doing all sorts of other spiritual practices when I was probably in my early 30s, that memory started to bubble up. And at one point, one teacher did a, I guess, hypnotic regression of some sort. And I slipped back into that space of what it was like to pull up above my body and watch myself. I remember at the time when I had this experience, I pulled out of my body, watching everything that's going. And I was actually gleeful that I was out of my body. And I didn't want to go back. I remembered very clearly that it was too painful for me to be on earth. And I had these two guardians with me and I was I'm not going back. I didn't know what I was getting into, <laughs> you know, and I was negotiating like, I can't do this anymore. And they were like, nope, you have to go back. This is the whole point. You're supposed to learn about pain on earth. This is your work and you're going to find a way through it. And I think I can't do this. I had no idea what it was going to be like on earth when I agreed to this. But anyway, you know, obviously I got pulled back in. And I remember, by the way, when I had that experience meditating at the time, I had not done much personal development work at that point or healing. I'm thinking, why was I not wanting to come back on earth? I had had this image that I had this idyllic childhood and everything was so perfect. And I usually wear rose colored glasses anyway. So my tendency isn't to look at pain and suffering. So I couldn't understand it until I actually ended up doing the work on myself and on digging up what was so hard for me. But I think the impact it had on me is that I also recognized later in life that on some level, I hadn't fully inhabited my body, that I didn't feel safe on earth. And so part of me has always been a little bit removed from me. I didn't feel myself in my physical body. And so again, I did a lot of work, tantric work, other things that brought me back into my body. And then I had to deal with the pain of being in there and the fear of being in here. So I've had to work through a lot of that. But it wasn't something I remembered from childhood. It was something I dissociated from. Right. But the memory sits in the soul. It's interesting. I just lost a very close friend, another one, due to COVID in India. Oh, I'm so sorry. Doing her funeral, we did a memorial service just a few days ago, and she was a well-known celebrity in India. I just felt her dancing, and I could feel her thoughts going, oh, Sister Jenna, this is what you used to teach me, that I'm a soul and I'm not the body. And You're right. Oh, my gosh. If we could only be so conscious when we're in the body, we'll be free. We'll be dance. And this is all the thought I kept picking up from her that Mm. she was so happy. Yes, Yes. she had her three kids that she left behind, but she said their souls, they'll be fine. They'll be happy. And I could pick up all of that. And I feel that one of the things actually the world needs now is a remembrance, a return and experience of the soul. Absolutely. Like, I think everybody needs a near-death experience to get back (laughs) to their humanity because there's so much happening. Now, I also came to find out that you had a really, really special relationship with your father, who was a World Bank economist. How did that relationship with your dad impact you? For me, my dad was like, he was so detached and so, you know, proper and nice that, I don't know, I just never felt like I had a very deep bond with him. 
And yet I felt that wouldn't it have been great or special if I did? Well, whatever he did, he did right because you're perfect. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want you to be any other way than you are. So, <laughs> so you've turned out beautifully. You know, and I think back, I think that I came to earth to be with my dad, actually. Like he's the one who drew me in, in a way. I mean, maybe I changed that story, but that's the story I have at the moment. I may start to cry, so forgive me. He's passed away a couple of years ago and I feel him around, but I still miss him a lot. And we spent a lot of time apart from each other. And he was very detached in some ways too, meaning that his whole life was about service. In some ways, he was more focused on helping other people's children than he was his own mm. children. I mean, but what a model about service that he was. He was an incredible, generous man. And he just honored the feminine. So from just a young child, he loved the feminine. His whole work was about empowering women, basically, girls and women. So all that he gave me, all that passion. I'd come home from school. He'd come back from work. And dinners were about conversations about rural electrification and how that was helpful to children who could then read in the Filipino villages and the Indonesians. I mean, we were talking about those sorts of things for me from a young age. And so he modeled service. He was also very humble. He was not a World Bank official who sat in the capital when he would travel. He went into the villages, talked to people. He actually grew up in India part of his life. He was Iranian, but spent formative years in India. So he was influenced by Gandhi. He was there at the tail end of India's independence movement. So Gandhi was like his big teacher. That's what I grew up around. He was also very allowing. A lot of Iranian men are controlling. I hate to say this, forgive me, but, you know, the way they parent, the way they do things, a lot of authoritarian. And he was not, his father was like that. Isn't it? It is. You almost can't blame the Iranian men, the Indian men, (laughs) the Chinese men, the African men, the Spanish men. It's like, there's like a cultural norm. It's only, I think, you know, when you come like to Europe or America, there's like an attempt to leverage these gender relationships. but Well, but that's also new in Europe. Let's just be real. I mean, yeah, this is not true. the way Europe was. Germany was awful at one point. It was very patriarchal, which is that's why we had true. Hitler. I mean, this is about evolution, right? And so my dad was the change in his family system. That was what's extraordinary about him. He chose to be different, like Gandhi chose to be different. And he was different as a father and how he modeled things. He didn't force us into anything. It was always allowing, allowing our spiritual development. I don't know if you read the book, Free Me to Love, but I talk about kind of my forays into different spiritual things. He was curious, but he would also question me, just with questions. He didn't say, you can't do that. You shouldn't do this. He was just open. And just by asking and trusting me, I evolved. The other thing my dad did, which I think was extraordinary, you've gotten me on a topic I don't get to talk very often about, (laughs) but I think this was really exceptional about him and kind of like this wonderful guy behind me, Benjamin Franklin, he was unlimited in some ways. You know, he grew, he lost his father really young. He came out of a minority community that was very disadvantaged. And he built himself from nothing, came to the United States, got a job in the World Bank. I mean, he was extraordinary. And whenever I wanted to do something, he would say to me, Suzanne, what do you want to do? And don't let money be the limit. Anything. What do you want to do? And so he planted this unlimitedness into my being. I mean, I still like at moments now that he's gone, I think, okay, now I've got to like really live this. But he was like that. Also, he was exploring. He was always curious and learning and exploring. And I remember waking up early one morning and he was doing yoga. He was trying different things. And, you know, he's just this open-minded man who was both an economist, but also open and exploring. I remember dragging him at one point, but I didn't drag him. I was curious about past life regression work. 
he came along with me, you know, I think he was probably 60 something and he was curious. I love so that. he was sort of a companion in that way. And I, I really that. appreciated that. And one more thing that was extraordinary about him, my siblings would attest to this. He was Zoroastrian by birth, but like Gandhi, he was open to lots of faith. So whenever we passed a church, he would cross himself. Us kids, we would make fun of him when we were younger. What are you doing? And he would fast for Ramadan, for example. And he just wanted to convey respect for different faiths. He just embodied that for us. And he was this global citizen, universal person. You know, the world is my family kind of person. Mm -hmm. So that influenced me because I think I tried to take up some of those qualities. Of course, my mother's influenced me as well in great ways. And we can talk about that. But she's also a different kind of influence. It's interesting to witness the legacy our parents leave in us, you know. And here you are in an area doing work that can be very painful to witness, whether it's cultural or collective. I mean, one of the things that you've been exploring and a pioneer in is the collective trauma and the cultural traumas that we're witnessing. India is revealing to the world something that I don't think they ever wanted to even face as a nation, the way they treat their poor and underprivileged. Mm. And for the world to see that it's like, if you speak to middle or upper middle class, they're like, eh, yeah. But when you show it to the whole world, they'll be like, well, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. We're learning about cultural norms that we are so accustomed to might not necessarily be the best. And what do we do to change from that? There's a saying, you can take the man out of the country, but it's not so easy to take the country out of the man. So could you talk about this, the collective trauma that we witness and the cultural traumas that we endure and realize it's okay. It's fine to do that. My parents did it. My auntie did it. This one did it. It's not. It's criminal. Anyone experiences suffering and pain from the hands of another person. Oh, for sure. Yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously, India is not unique, right? Many countries, many people have not treated the vulnerable in the best of ways. And I think of my work as a continuation of my father's. I did study economics, and my father was a development economist and worked with the most vulnerable. And I did that in the beginning of my career. But I became interested because I was also like, why aren't we making breakthroughs? Why are certain communities stuck? And that's how I got interested in trauma. I wasn't originally interested in trauma, but it's what came up. I couldn't deny what I was seeing. And I was a little probably more open to seeing it than other people. Maybe that's what these guides, when I had my near-death experience, told me is that I was here to see the pain and the suffering and to label it. And the label I gave it was trauma. It was pretty obvious that it was that. But economists weren't seeing it. Political scientists weren't seeing it. So the doctoral dissertation I ended up writing was a dissertation on the role of trauma in economic underdevelopment and also political underdevelopment. Why communities were stuck in cycles of violence and poverty that had to be rooted in histories of collective trauma that had them stuck in stories, basically. It's a lot of things stuck in stories about limitation and about why, lack. Why was everyone so stuck? Is it all about economy? It isn't all about economy. I mean, in part, sometimes we can inject money and things into a system and still nothing changes. Yeah. Have you ever loaned money to someone who you wanted to help and nothing changed? I've done yeah. that plenty. I mean, they ended up blowing the money, coming back, wanting more. I mean, it's not that you shouldn't help, but something else in addition to the money has to be done. It's not that complicated, actually. It's a sense of not being worthy, being a victim, not feeling empowered to do things, not thinking you have the capacity. 
I mean, you've got to give people opportunity. Obviously, you've got to give, you know, access to resources and education, but that's not necessarily enough. You can do those things. And some communities still stay stuck in cycles of violence and cycles of poverty. What else is going on? It's at the level of being socialized into certain feeling of not being good enough Mm -hmm. and therefore creating out of that sense of oneself. So I'm grossly simplifying this, right? I've written hundreds and hundreds of pages about this, but it's a very important thing. So there are different kinds of collective traumas. You can have a trauma like we're going through the pandemic, but it's relatively short term. It may or may or not affect our value system. It may or may not affect the way we raise our children, but there are traumas that people go through that actually damage them long term in how they raise children, how they tell their histories. And those are the more severe forms of collective trauma that affect the culture. So in the case of indigenous populations or Native American people or Aboriginal communities, First Nations communities, I don't know how many people know about the history of residential boarding schools, but by law in the 1890s, Native children were forcibly removed from families and sent to residential boarding schools, mission schools, half of them. They were either run by army or missionaries. And many of these places were emotionally, psychologically, physically, sexually at times abusive. And there were places where these children were sent to basically civilize them. And it was really an effort to change their culture. But it was very damaging. Can you imagine several generations of children having had this experience? The first generation, by the way, 50% didn't come out alive. They died of heartbreak and disease and all sorts of things. Imagine first what happens to the families that are left behind, like their children are taken from them. But then imagine these children coming back as late adolescents not knowing their language, not respecting their culture, being brainwashed into thinking they were inferior. And then several generations of this, what do you think happens? Why are we surprised that there's epidemic of substance abuse, anything to numb the pain, or that there's high suicide rates still? I mean, this is the legacy that we created. I didn't create this, but the settlers populations created cultural damage. So this is a whole different beast collective trauma than what we're experiencing now during the pandemic. I mean, I hate to say, but there are different kinds of collective traumas, right? And so that collective trauma requires a different kind of intervention than this one right now. But, you know, some of the things are the same. The collective trauma that actually damages culture, like slavery, like what the Native peoples experienced, requires cultural restoration and cultural renewal. What would be one of the first steps for that cultural renewal, especially where slavery is concerned and knowing the history that we've seen with African-Americans, what would be the first step that either as an African-American should make or even somebody who's Caucasian-American? I mean, both groups have to put in some kind of effort. Absolutely. Well, it's all of us. I mean, every one of us has to look at how we are both oppressor and victim. I mean, all of us. You know, the trick is to break out of the whole victim, perpetrator, and then savior. It's a triangle. The shamans I've worked with talk about that. So take step out of that story altogether, that we're not victim, we're not perpetrator, and we're not savior, you know, that we're sovereign beings. Many of us are caught in the victim. If we're victim, then we're going to be perpetrators. We might be perpetrators in our whole family system. A man who has been racially discriminated against may come home and be a perpetrator in his household towards his wife and children, right? I mean, you've got to break out of the whole dynamics. You have to look at yourself and take full responsibility. I mean, I think there's a lot of, believe me, I know I've been doing this now myself for 30 years, right? It's constant taking responsibility. It's not just that. Obviously, we've got to change 
the structural discrimination, the policy. We've got to change all those things as well. I mean, all of that is given. We've got to change the ways people are discriminated. But the individual work has to be done too. I found that in situations that I'm uncomfortable with, like moving from, I was in McLean, Virginia for so many years, and now I'm in Centerville, Virginia. As I go through this big shift inside, I find that when I go in and I check that I'm not feeling so great, and I'm saying this because of what you've said, that I would say one of the most important questions anyone should ask themselves if they ever feel victimized is why am I feeling this or how am I feeling? To really begin to start the work with you for your own healing and feeling because we're yeah. the ones in charge of the way we want to feel. Situations, structures, systems, spouses, circumstances, they all might be in a mess. Okay, that's a fact. But at the end of the day, am I not the one that can choose to feel the way I need to feel? And I think that's one of the hardest assignments. You've got your upcoming book, When It's Consent, Not Consent. It addresses genital mutilation and cutting and the call for cultural renewal. What is the role of intergenerational trauma? You've touched a little bit on it. But in the continuation of practices such as genital mutilation, I forgot who that model was that was working on helping yes. in that in Somalia. Remember her? I know who you're talking about. She's an amazing, courageous woman. Yeah. That, right. She's got an and amazing I, organization. Yeah. I can't imagine that that culture would exist, that you would close up a young girl's private parts, and then when she gets married, you would open that up. And when I think about it, I go, why would you do that? And then I yeah. keep wondering, why is it that society has not created some kind of a rehabilitation for souls in male bodies. I just don't understand. I've never heard of a girl going to rape a guy. I just don't hear it. And I'm just like, when do we start to have this conversation for men to really begin to do some rehabilitation inside of their spirits? Absolutely. I want to say that I was looking up on my phone because I have this on my phone. There's something called emotional emancipation circles. Mm-hmm. that are set up for, I think, African-American communities, but they may be for all communities, but it sounds amazing. So anyone interested in that kind of healing work, these emotional emancipation circles would be, I think, a great place to start. So then shift to female genital mutilation, which is a whole different topic altogether. In your upcoming yes. Book. What's interesting about female genital mutilation, and I hate to use interesting because it's something that has haunted me for 40 years. This book is a culmination of 40 years of thinking about and working on this topic. But there are people who argue that it's not just men, that this is something, a practice that women do to girls, that it's sanctioned by women. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, who are we to say it's their culture? Women are choosing this. This is why I have when is consent, not consent. Women are choosing this. So who are we, white people or brown people like me or whatever, who are we to say they shouldn't do this? This is their human right and their freedom, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what I'm calling righteous inaction people who are arguing for righteous inaction. And then there's the people who argue for righteous action, which is, oh my God, this is so evil. This is so awful. They're doing this, they're doing that. And this is righteous action. And I'm advocating for not righteous inaction, which is it's their culture. They have a right to do whatever they want. It's their choice. I'm not arguing against righteous action. I'm arguing for compassionate action, which is really humble because we have stuff in our own cultures. All of our cultures have stuff. You know, it's harder to see within our own systems, right? We have child abuse here. We have all sorts of things we do here, right? I mean, 
it's not like we somehow are superior or different from. It's just like they can see ours, we can see theirs. This practice is unnecessary. For, it's adding suffering. I mean, perhaps that's my take on it. The book that I wrote is arguing that. What are the stories that we have about why this is necessary? I just want to point out, this isn't just about men, right, having to rehabilitate themselves. These are women, the women who are cutting the girls, women who are offering their children to do this. There was a woman in Kenya just recently, a doctor, a Kenyan doctor, who took this to court that female genital mutilation is illegal. And she was saying women who are adults should be able to practice this if they want. Fortunately, just recently, the Kenyan courts said, no, (laughs) it's still illegal. But she was arguing that it should be an adult's choice to be cut or not. And of course, there are different variations in cutting and, you know, sewing and everything. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. But I think we need to not come from judgment, right, but from conversation and then action. I I don't even think it's coming from judgment. I think it's coming from me is painful. Yeah, it's sadness. Girls are so young. And, you know, you see yourself in that place. And I think that even though it's women, the mothers, the grandmothers, you know, the chief women of the village are taking these young girls to do that, it's because of the men, though. I would say that brainwashing, that cultural norms, that this is what's needed. Why would they do that, Suzanne? To some extent, you're right, but they're also caught in this narrative of this is what it is to be a good woman, right? And some of that's the men, but some of that's them. We can blame men a lot. We're justified in blaming men. I'm wanting there to be a conversation where we can all sit at the table and have a heartfelt discussion and say, honestly, we love you, but can we somehow find a way to understand what our needs are instead of it always being forced on us or, you know, that you have to do the cooking, you have to do that, or your vagina has to be mutilated. And No, it doesn't. You'd be very happy to hear the last part of the book is about various interventions. And there's one intervention that I really love. It's called the Grandmother's Project. And it's not just grandmothers, but primarily focused on grandmothers and empowering grandmothers. But it's really a conversation with grandmothers and grandfathers, the elders, exactly what you're saying. These conversations that raise the consciousness, you know, and they become the change agents in their community because they're actually the most influential, right? Right. So they end up changing things, but you have the conversation with the elders who usually the ones seem to be the most stuck in their ways. But in this case, the grandmother's project is changing the way they're seeing this issue and they're actually becoming more effective in how the culture is changing these communities that are have this project going in. So you're absolutely right. And we do need to have this conversation with the elders, with the men and the women. I mean, patriarchy is at the heart of a lot of this stuff that's oppressing both women and men. It's been hard for me to admit I wanted to be this very serious woman who was an economist and taken seriously in the world. But really, it's so simple. It's like men and women, their relationship how we raise our children, (laughs) back to these basic things, like that determines everything. I don't care what else. It's how are you raising your kids? What is the relationship like between the parents and the elders? And it's so simple. Is there a community that supports them properly? But we have to value it, right? We have to value children. Earlier before we got live, I told you about this contractor. I inherited a contractor that somehow wasn't thoughtful about the fact that he left our house uninhabitable. And the part that got to many of us was that 
I had paid him for the job ahead of time because oh, I trusted him and I wanted him to feel that I believe in him and I believe that he would have the place ready in time. Long story short, I was observing my feelings and frustration yeah. transforming. And so when he would want to reach out or something, I felt that I wasn't the angel that I needed to be to communicate with him. I found myself going, that's what it is with everyone else, you know. There is a feeling that you're holding in your heart for someone. And even though the person might have done wrong by you, you're doing wrong by you by holding that negative feeling for the person. Yeah. And why it all seems so complicated, Suzanne, where it's like, why isn't the world in a better place? We have enough money, resources, intelligence, freedom, and yet the feelings in souls have become so traumatized with anger, with the sense of loss, grief, abandonment, yeah. shame, guilt, that as souls, we don't know what to do to get rid of that feeling. And you know what? It's almost traditional and cultural because we've been carrying yeah. on with these emotions and feelings for lifetimes after lifetimes. Exactly. And no one's addressing it. And well, this is our generation to do it, right? I think that's what we've come here to do. And we're finally at a time where awareness is the first key, right? To become aware. You're so right in everything that you said that we're carrying not just our own stuff. This was my experience in the book that I wrote, Free Me to Love, is all about this. It's freeing myself from not just my own. These are shackles we've through the generations that we're finally able to do something about. And as we heal ourselves, we heal the generations behind us, but also the future generations. I'm about to be grandmother in September, and I don't want my grandson to be carrying this one more generation, you know? I mean, it stops as much as I can. I'm going to clean up my act so that this does not go forward. And I think that's the commitment we have to make, right? To love our children and grandchildren better than we've been loved. Could you say that again? There's something that you said, that once you free yourself from that hurt or whatever that is, you're actually freeing the generations behind you of that. Could you go a little bit more in that? Because that was really <laughs> deep. When you talk about freeing me to love and you're letting go of all that stuff and you're doing the work now, you leave behind you this legacy for everyone to see and witness what it's like to live free of trauma. Well, just that we have inherited stories, including stories about our identity, right? Who we think we are. Like, I am this, you know, and I am this discriminated community and I'm blah, blah, blah. These are the generational stories that we also carry that are hurtful in some ways, limiting. Mm -hmm. So as we free ourselves from these stories of limitation of who we think we are, we think that we are loyal to our ancestors by holding on to their anger. They actually want to be free. They're like cheering us, please free yourself. Let us be free. Free yourself from this. They're waiting for us to free ourselves. They want us free. They don't want us holding on to their grudges and rage and whatever. I don't think so. I think they want us to heal it, meaning let go and step into the new of what's possible for us now, the unlimitedness of it. And we do. We free those generations. There is no sense of time. Time is all happening at once. So we free the whole system, goes up and down, transforms. I mean, that's the belief I have. That's what I've been taught, and I feel it, actually. People who believe in past lives, it's not past, it's happening. And so as we heal even now, we heal elements in those lifetimes. We're at the cutting edge. Finally, we're at a time in human history 
where we are beginning to understand trauma and its effects and impact, and we can heal it. But it means we have to be careful because trauma is seductive, right? Trauma yeah. itself can be an identity. So I'm a traumatized person. I'm a traumatized this. So it's a really fine line of not being seduced by it, but doing the work, releasing the heartbreak. I mean, you were hurt by someone who you felt betrayed by, your contractor. I mean, you gave him this completely open heart and it hurts. And that needs to be acknowledged. You want to acknowledge it and honor it, but you don't want to get attached to it, right? So that's the trick, the both, both and. And I think that's the challenge. And as you do so, you free all the generations, including the ones going forward, including the perpetrator. I mean, we don't want to heal the perpetrator necessarily, but as we step out of the victim, we do. We cut this energetic tie with the perpetrator and the perpetrator's free to change identity as well. That's part of the generosity is to allow the perpetrator also to change. I love that. You know, I really enjoyed our chat together. Uh, I can't believe we're at the end of our conversation. We've got to come back and do a part two. Is there any sort of a virtual book talks that you've got coming up? Is there a website that you can leave our listeners with that they can actually learn more about your work and participate in some of your journeys? Well, thank you for asking. And I do have a website. It's www.susan, S-O-U-S-A-N. It's Susan with an O. I stuck the O in there in college. Susan Abadian, A-B-A-D-I-A-N.com. And if you go on there and sign up for my newsletter, I will let you know of upcoming things and when my books get published. So I'd love to share more with all of you. Thank you. Dr. Susan Abadian, thank you so much. It's been a delight having you on air today. Thank you, Sister Jenna. All right, everyone. I mean, look at the work that Suzanne has done and really go into this conversation today. I think it's really important. If you listen to it over and over again, because I'm replaying it even as I'm talking to you, there were so many nuggets to help for some kind of a transformation. So I hope that something that was shared today helped you to emerge into a better version of yourself. That's why I do the show quite regularly. I want to emerge into a better version and When I look at you or speak with you, I want you to be the same. I want you to feel the value and the beauty of life. I don't want you to make this time pass you by and you end up just realizing that you wasted so much time. So as much as there is a lot of not such good stories in our humanity, there's also a lot of good stories. And we need to start to amplify those, share those, remember them so that we can move into the future where, as Suzanne was saying, you heal yourself in this life and in this incarnation, then you leave a legacy behind that nobody even knows what hurt is anymore. I mean, I think that's fantastic. And maybe that's really what it is. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to practice loving each other the same. Take care. Be well. All the best. I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.